When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Season four begins. Hello and welcome to episode one of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 45 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. This week we'll be looking back at the Euros, while in addition to that there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next three quarters of an hour. It's been an incredible summer of football and this week we've once again got a full house. That means leading the line and wearing the captain's armband is Carl. So, Carl, how have you been since we last spoke? Yeah, really good, thanks, Dan. We've, we've all had a well-deserved break, haven't we, over the summer? Um, so, looking forward to getting back into all things football uh, and having some good chats with you guys on a weekly basis. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the next nine months. You'll be flanked by Fulham fan Matthew. Matthew, how have you been over the course of the summer? Tell you what, it has been a fan. It's been a fantastic summer, mainly because football didn't come home. <laughs> but also on some, also on some personal news, I managed to get myself engaged to an absolutely fantastic woman, and I'm judging I top and turn every single day whether or not which to which bit of news was the most important. England not winning or me getting engaged, but it's it's been a fantastic <laughs> one to be sure. Well, it's great to hear, mate. Congratulations, fantastic news, and also you're joined by Palace fan Max. Max, you've moved house. That's still a landmark in itself. So how are you doing, my friend? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm good, thank you. I'm good, thank you. Congratulations, uh, Matthew. Yeah, it, it's been a bit of a whirlwind summer, what with everything happening and loads of sport being on. But yeah, nice to have a break, but also very nice to be back, of course. Excellent. Right, before we get into the pre-season routine, I'll do some social media bits. Otherwise, we'll be talking into the abyss once more. So first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at DanTracy1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at RealFootballPod. And if you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club, which now has more than 1,000 members. So a huge shout to everyone, new and old, who's joined up. I really, really do appreciate it. We all do. Talking of clubs, I'm delighted to announce we're now part of the UK's first ever sports podcast network, 
that being Sports Social. So check out the URL and the links posted throughout the week on the Real Football Pod account, and that will take you to the show. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like us, leave a review so we move up the league table. I need to mention my content partner, that being betting.com. If you want betting previews and tips, go to that website. The easiest way to find all the links is by going to linktree slash realfootballcast. There's a dot between the R and the E. And once you do that, you get 10 podcast platforms to choose from. It's never been easier to listen to the show. Right, it's time to go live for the first time this season. And where should we go first? Let's wind back a month or so ago. Because, Carl, football for us very nearly came home. Is the final defeat to Italy still a little raw for you? Or, as per usual, has time become something of a decent healer? I think a mixture of a couple of things, Dan. Um, Probably being a Spurs fan, you're probably more prepared for that sort of disappointment and failure than than most other fans. Um, So it it kind of felt very similar on the night to the recent experiences we've had. Um, And then, yeah, it was just disappointing because, you know, when especially with the final, when you consider the way the first half went, I felt we kind of had Italy on the rack a little bit, you know, and we was troubling them. And then we kind of just seemed to sort of go into half-time and think, well, that's it. You know, we'll just come out and defend. You could see quite early on in that second half that the momentum had shifted and that we needed to make a change. Um, It didn't happen. And unfortunately, ultimately, you know, we we fell at the normal hurdle of of a penalty shootout. Um, But I think if you look back on it, it it was a good tournament overall, wasn't it? Just in the general standard of football. And, you know, for England now, you know, that's a semi-final and a final in back-to-back tournaments. So you've got to think, well, yet the future is looking kind of bright. And who knows, maybe next summer we, we can go one step further. Now, Matthew, I was going to ask if you had any kind of home nation lean on that final evening. But I think your earlier statement has blown that out of the water. So I'm guessing, as you've said, a huge relief when Donnarumma saved that final penalty. I tell you what, it was a nerve. It was a nerve. It was a scary couple of hours. I'll say that much. I, you know, I, I joke about this whole thing of um, you know not wanting England to win. And if I'm being honest, it's not so much the team, like the England team. They're they're, they're a bunch of nice guys. You know, Harry Kane is you know his misdemeanor training aside is a nice guy. Harry Maguire, I love. Grealish is a fantastic player. Jordan Pickford is a bit of a loudmouth, but he's a fun character. There's no one in the England team that I don't like. It's mainly the fans and you know the 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 reaction about it, you know, in the lead up to it, football's coming home, all that sort of stuff. Then the scenes outside Wembley beforehand. It just made me think, really, I don't want them to win because I don't want to see what the nation is going to become if England were to win. It's nothing against the team personally. So yeah, when Donnarumma did save that penalty, it was a, it was a, it was a bit of a uh, it was very much a, a big sigh of relief on my end. Now, Max, I mentioned Donnarumma. He got the Player of the Tournament award, but I think on this show we all kind of owe Jordan Pickford something of an apology because we were quite critical of him during the season for Everton, but for England, faultless really, wasn't he? Yeah, very much. He, he really, really came through. And to be fair, he, he's never actually shown that kind of erratic nature which he's shown at Everton, his club. He's never really showed that for England. True. And so I, I kind of understand why Gareth Southgate has stuck by him because, you know, he's experienced. Um, he, he's obviously been playing really regularly Um, unlike Henderson, who kind of came in towards the end, but not so much across the whole season. And yeah, he's never let England down. So I understand why Southgate stuck by him. And, you know, he had a couple of times where he almost got closed down and 
there were a couple of heart and mouth moments, but ultimately he completely vindicated his place. And yeah, I mean, I was I was obviously delighted to to, to see it because I thought he was he was really good. Um, and it's yeah, it's a bit of a shame he got eclipsed by Donnarumma at, at the end there, because otherwise, you know, he would have been in the running for for one of the best keepers of the tournament, along with Danny Ward, I should mention as well, and um, the Finland keeper as well, Kredetsky. Um But yeah, Pickford was was definitely great um, on the. On the England winning thing, obviously, even I was a little bit nervous about what might happen because if we'd won, because and, and that was a positive, I guess, of us not winning the tournament because it was carnage after the semi-final and you know a hundred thousand people turning up at Wembley and it was it was almost like anarchy. It was like looting and <laughs> um, like nicking cars and fights and throwing beers and whatever. And it, it was it was a bit it was a bit manic, but. Um, but yeah, obviously a real shame that we couldn't, couldn't do it at the, at the final stage. Yeah, you'd have to say that the tournament brought out the best of England fans, but it also did bring out the worst of England fans. And I think, unfortunately, that's a common trait. It seems to follow us everywhere. We go away to, I don't know, the Nations League, we play Amsterdam, and it's a a big jolly up. And you always see, you know, someone throw a bike in the canal or something, you think, we've got to stop travelling like this and be better. You know, you see Scotland, they tidy up Leicester Square, we smash it up. But anyway, I haven't got time to sort of Anybody England fans anymore? Because Carl, I want to chat about um, VAR. There was hardly any of it. You kind of forgot it was there. So is that it working properly? Is that Premier League refs being inept? What do you make of the tech during the summer? Yeah, well, this would be the second tournament now, wouldn't it, Dan? Yeah. You know, after the first, you know, after the World Cup, we was all praising it because it had been done really well. And then in this tournament, you know, it, it kind of seemed that it had been done really well. Um, a few decisions that you kind of thought, I, you know, we haven't seen that that's been looked at. And potentially if that's looked at, it gets changed, you know, and a couple of them went against England at times. But the fact that we never had those instances of watching lines being drawn and stuff like that and, you know, two minutes between each goal to come to a decision, I felt was really good. And, and it was a breath of fresh air, wasn't it? Not to see the kind of carnage that we see week in, week out. So I think that is the kind of benchmark that, you know, that's how it needs to be put in and that's how it needs to work. Um, and hopefully, who knows, you know, we, we can get this kind of figured out and sorted out for next season because it, it was nice to see and not have those sort of delays or those horror shows that, that like I say, we spent many weeks talking about last season. And you get the feeling we're going to spend many weeks talking about it this season. But Matthew, it would be unfair to thrust all the Euro spotlight on England when talking all things Euros. So what did you make of Wales's tournament coming from the right man to ask here? Do you think you've also got a good platform for Qatar 2022? And more importantly, I guess legal issues aside, is Paige the man to take you forward? Um, I, I, it's, it is a bit of a tough one. Like the tournament overall, I thought we were luck, not lucky, but I didn't think we were going to get out of the group when the, when the draw was first made. So I thought the fact that we were able to do it and do it in such a way, you know, drawing with the Swiss, who went on to have a pretty decent tour of themselves, beating Turkey, who was everyone's dark horses, and then only keeping Italy, the eventual winners, down to 1-0. Pretty good to come out of the stage. Obviously, the Denmark game was was the Denmark game, and everything that had been going on around it with the Christian Eriksen thing and the fact that it was them playing at home, we were never going to we were never going to win that game. So I was happy, not happy, but not disappointed. We went out at the stage we did. The manner of it, you know, 4-0 and then two red cards, I think it was. I've tried to wipe that game as, as basically after the final whistle. Um, well, obviously, wasn't great. Overall, I think Robert Page is probably the... 
in a, in the nicest possible way, the best of a bad bunch, in a sense, you know. Because this was the talk when, whenever, you know, whenever, when, basically when Giggs was appointed, is we don't really have many Welsh managers out there that have got like the experience that will do the job or can do the job. Like the best, like the best option right now would be Tony Pulis, which I don't think anyone really wants. You know, other than a like a wild card, like a Steve Cooper, who's just about now to say available, that. I was just about to ask yeah, that. has a minor bit of international manage, management because he was with the England under 17s. He is Welsh. He's now available. You could kind of understand that, but I don't want to. I don't want to just you know, completely scrap everything because he has built you know a pretty decent, you know, serviceable side out of that. You know, the uh, qualifying campaign, the Nations League campaign that we had before the Euros showed that there is something there, and I don't want to just scrap it after one after one bad tournament. So no, I, for the moment, Page stays in there. Okay, then Max, what did you make of the tournament overall? I thought it was excellent in all fairness, final result aside. I guess, guess if there's one criticism, though, it's that imbalance of the groups. I'm a man of numerical order, 8, 16, 32. They're your perfect size tournaments due to its natural flow. I don't really like the fact that third-place teams qualify for the next round, but I guess we're in this situation where if you have 32 nations out of what would be 55 qualifying it would then make qualifying an absolute far so how do you AFA solve this problem does it get even bigger what do you do yeah that, that, that's actually a good question because um with regards to um like the integrity of the tournament and not wanting to kind of dilute the quality either you keep it as it is now or maybe even cut it down to 16 if it, i think 16 is too small 24 at the moment as you say Sometimes the third place team is is going through and, and that feels a little bit wrong. But then if you expand it to 32, which I think is a great size for a tournament in terms of, you know, six round of 16 and then quarterfinals and all of that. But then in, that means that qualification, basically, you know, there, there might be, what, three teams per, per qualifying group going through. And then, you know, then the... The, the the qualifying group is is increased in in how many teams are going through so whether it's in the tournament or in the qualifying group there are obviously going to be some allowances somewhere i think 32 uh, for me i think i think that's that's the ideal size because it, it works for the tournament um you're adding in eight teams and it's not going to dilute the quality too much because the next best eight teams in europe are still going to be of a decent standard and you know around the kind of uh finland level of level of football so you know you're not going to see teams getting absolutely thrashed in the groups and you know that it's like they shouldn't be there um it will make the qualifying groups a little bit easier for for bigger teams to come through and at the moment uh the qualifying places are obviously is very competitive for them but i think it's fine to to expand it uh to 32 i think that that's, that's probably the best way to do it for me in terms of the whole tournament i thought it was quite good um obviously logistically they had to kind of spread it out over lots of countries um, because of because of COVID and that kind of thing, I, I think that worked fine. Obviously, it's not a long term solution, and in future, you you wouldn't want to share countries unless they were neighbouring and you know very close, like I don't know Belgium and Holland or something like that, um, Spain and Portugal, because it, the the travelling was a bit too much. And I thought the stuff about England playing at home was a little bit overblown, um, but I mean it, it does make a difference. So yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to getting back to a kind of regular tournament hopefully next time. Uh, fingers crossed there isn't another another virus going around at that point. Um, but, but yeah, I, I thought it was a good tournament. Well, let's go back to Matthew then, because Wales will have reason to take umbrage with all that distance. Was it Chris Gunter 
who was making that very point. You know, you're travelling to Baku, Copenhagen, the like. So, for you, did that multi-venue tournament fall a bit flat? I I think I remember saying sort of when when this was first idea, not on this podcast, this was you know back in the day, that I thought, okay, I kind of get the idea of it. I kind of understand where they're going with it. You know, wanting to spread it around Europe so that basically you don't have you know, it's basically to take the ease off of one country so that you know you don't have twenty-four sets of fans in effect coming to England because that, you know, unless you are a properly decent size and properly infrastructure country, it can be a bit of a strain so i thought the idea of it was okay some of the venues were a bit off the mark you know baku being taken for example just no absolute nonsense i get it if you want to spread it around multiple countries fine but again make it somewhat narrower like yeah like why did baku get the game but wales didn't because we you know we got the biggest stadium how come you know sweden didn't get games if you're gonna if you're giving games to denmark sort of thing why didn't Belgium get a game if you're giving games to you know to the Dutch and to Germany and to France and all that? So the idea of it was okay, and I think there is some legitimacy to the whole, you know, Chris Gunter complaining about the travel that some would have to. I think his comments were probably a little bit too far because you know it wasn't just Wales they're doing it; there were multiple teams that had to do it. Um, and I don't want to see it as, as an excuse. You know, Wales were the worst team on the day against Denmark. We were always going to lose. But it, it was a factor, but I don't think it should be used as like the great big, you know, a team that a team that had to do a lot of travelling. Let's say Denmark, because I think they had to do some travelling as well. I don't want to see that as the reason why, oh, that was the reason we lost to England, was because we had to play, you know, somewhere far away the week before, whereas England had to play at home sort of thing. I don't want to buy into that level of it too much. Well, I know Alexander Seferin has said that this multi-venue setup can never take place again. It's just unworkable. It's a nice idea in theory, but then COVID changed the landscape and it just fell a little bit flat. And then you've got all the disparities between distance and so on and so forth. It would be interesting if it does go to 32 teams in that you then have to consider what countries could actually host that much football. England, Germany, Spain, your bigger nations and maybe a few joint bids again, but you'd probably be rotating between a close shop of about four or five across every four years. But, you know, that's the uh, the pinnacle of football and you need those measures in place to host these big tournaments. Of course, Carl, it was a big tournament, but it was almost overshadowed for a terrible reason. And I think we need to really mention Christian Eriksen. I think it goes without saying we send our best wishes. It's fantastic to see him just up and about, but that tournament could have had a completely different feel about it in those opening days, couldn't it? Yeah, it could have done. And, and it was one of them things that was actually shocking to kind of see, wasn't it? You yeah. know, because obviously, you know, if you weren't really paying attention to the game, you suddenly just saw a guy on the floor. And I think the shock factor came in that when all of a sudden you start seeing CPR being performed on someone, you kind of go, oh, my God, this, what is going on here? And then obviously, you know, as I'm sure, you know, at the time it didn't go down well, how, how the cameras seemed to just stay panned on the situation. And obviously when you see him getting shocked as well with a defibrillator, it, it kind of does put football in, into context and thinking, well, there, there's, you know, there's things that are bigger than football. And as you say, Dan, thankfully he pulled through, you know, great medical staff and everything that they have on hand there, because I think if they hadn't been and maybe he hadn't come through, I'd 
think that tournament just has a real dampener on it yeah. and you know it, it's hard to recover it, it couldn't have recovered from that i don't think but the fact he came through um i, I think that with that was brilliant and yeah we just wish him all the best you know we know we've seen we've watched him plenty of times play for spurs so that kind of hit home a little bit more as well when it was happening but thankfully he's okay um obviously whether he plays football again or not you know i i doubt it but it, health is the main thing and the fact that he's still here is brilliant um and yeah luckily you know we have those great medical staff on hand you know the fact I, I can't believe they were made to play that game again after that situation that day that just seemed shocking a shocking decision to me but hopefully you know Denmark did themselves proud after that as well oh they certainly did and I think you have to give huge huge credit to his teammates you know the circle that they made around Ericsson uh, Simon Kier with the sort of movement of getting his tongue out of his mouth so he didn't choke on that you know these little moments that make a huge huge difference and it is just great that he's up and about and just alive really to simplify matters whether he plays again Kai as you say I don't think he will I know medical technology has advanced so much but an issue such as that for an athlete is quite big but you know he's had a great career so far and I think he'd just be happy to be around I know it'd be a huge blow if he couldn't play but sometimes you have to look at that bigger picture don't you Max, one last word. We'll go to Scotland um, for our listeners north of the border, of which there are some. The Czech Republic game. Who do you blame for Patrick Schick's goal? Was it Jack Hendry's ludicrous 40-yard effort when there was roughly 20 players in front of the ball? Or is it David Marshall's woeful positioning once that ball cannons back? Um, I think if, uh, if David Marshall had his time again, he might be a couple of steps deeper. However, I'm going to say it's Jack Hendry. Yeah. Um, because... David Marshall was not going against his manager's orders. In fact, it was part of the plan to have him nice and high uh, out of his box to act as a kind of a sweeper and to be able to kind of put pressure on and start attacks and um, and kind of win the ball fairly high up the pitch rather than leaving a massive gap between the defenders, you know, in the opposition half and the goalkeeper just standing on his six-yard line. So he, he was following instructions. Maybe in hindsight, he could say, oh, actually, I might have pushed it a little bit too far and I might have given myself some room. Um, but ultimately, it was just a, a kind of otherworldly, once-in-a-lifetime kind of goal. However, he would not have had the chance to do that had Jack Hendry not taken on that that stupid shot. I don't know how many times he scored from 40 yards in his career. I imagine it's uh, below one. Um, <laughs> So, <laughs> so I really don't understand what he was doing. Um, you know, you've got so many players in front of you. It's different if you're like 20 yards out and there's no options and you think, oh, well, I might as well have a go. But the position he was in, you know, just, just knock it forward, mate. Um, yeah, so I blame Hendry. Yeah, I think he hit the bar, didn't he, recently before. And I think that obviously he's thinking, oh, I'm in range. But as you say, Max, why are you taking that shot? It's not on. It's just nothing there. So although the optic is Marshall gets done and he's caught up in the net and that's the meme that circulates around the, the world. Um, Hendry has really got to sort of put his hands up and say, actually, yeah, I've sold you a short one there. But that's it for the Euros. We've shut the book on that. It's done. We've looked back. Let's look forward because somehow all of us here, we've all got new managers. Me and Carl are going to share one. But yes, we're in a position where we've all got new managers for the season ahead. So Max, I'm going to come back to you. Patrick Vieira, Selhurst Park. I don't think he was really in our discussions at the end of last season in terms of episodes where we were replacing Roy. Now, no Premier League experience from a management point of view, but certainly a playing point of view. Does that make you a little bit more confident about what he can do at Selhurst Park? 
Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. While um, th there are there have been kind of some comparisons to the previous time we tried to um, move on from a bit of a conservative manager and you know try to introduce some uh, a bit a better style of play, more expensive style of play. Obviously, we moved to Frank Taber, and people know how how that went. And I think Jose Mourinho probably isn't far off the mark when he said he was the worst manager in Premier League history. Um, so th there is some kind of understandable concern about that. But obviously, the fact that not only was he a, a legend as a player, I mean, that doesn't necessarily make him um, a good Premier League manager, but it obviously gives him an understanding of the of the game in England and, you know, the expectations and the physical uh, capacity you need. Uh, also, he's worked at uh, Manchester City as an under-23s coach. That is obviously like Manchester City's second team, and, and he's worked with some very good people there. Uh, Mikel Arteta, you know, people can say his career at Arsenal has been a little bit mixed, but he also went through that kind of process. So, you know, English football isn't isn't new to him. Um, and obviously, I think we're we're keeping a lot of the uh, the coaching staff, so the sporting director, Dougie Friedman, obviously the chairman have a good knowledge. So it's not like it's a complete ripping out of the previous infrastructure and replacing with a, a completely callow uh, new team. He was a little bit out of the... Um, out of the picture when we were talking about him before and I hadn't really realised that he was maybe um, in contention for the job but after uh, Favre had pulled out and after Nuno kind of seemingly pulled out looking for a, a bigger and better job which he then got um, I think I think it makes a lot of sense he, he wouldn't have been my um, first choice initially but uh, again I don't want to say best of a bad bunch but our options were obviously limited once, you know, Ismail had gone to West Brom and we didn't want Cooper. Lampard, I presume, said no. We didn't want Howe. Uh, obviously, Favre and Nuno backed out. And so at that point, you're, you're kind of looking around thinking, well, who's left? And, and Vieira was one of the only ones left. Um, that said, I don't want to be too critical. Um, he, he's obviously a big name in terms of the pulling power uh, that, and attracting players because Michael Elise, who's a very promising young player uh, who we signed from Reading, um, he basically signed very shortly after Vieira got there, which seems to me like Palace had maybe agreed a fee with Reading, kind of maybe agreed personal terms in principle, but at least he was just hanging on to make sure that Vieira came in or that a manager that he you know, really respected and wanted to play under came in. Similarly, a lot of the signings that we've made subsequently, which I'm very, very pleased about, um, a lot of them have said it was it's such an inspiration to, to be able to play under Vieira. And so definitely in terms of that, he he's really proving a draw for players that might not otherwise have come to the club necessarily under Hodgson, who, who is a very you know, respected and respectable man, but maybe doesn't have that same kind of star uh, quality that Vieira has. So, yeah, in, in conclusion, uh, after a very long answer, I'm, I'm pretty pleased. And, uh, you know, it could be a, an exciting time for us. OK, let's go from South London over to the West now, because Matthew... You're getting ready for the cut and thrust, or shall I say, perhaps the attrition, which is the championship this season. And you've got Marco Silva at the helm. Again, a bit of a, a left turn there. But what do you make of his arrival at Craven Cottage? There's two parts to this. There's <laughs> Here we go. Marco Silva, there's Marco Silva, the manager, and there's Marco Silva, the man, in effect. Now, this, is, this isn't anything like personal. Like, I'm sure he's a good person, like like lets old ladies cross the road in front of him, holds doors open for women. I'm sure he's absolutely fine person, but... We'll, we'll, we'll get to the football. We'll get to the football fit, bit first. From what I've seen and from what I gather, it seems to be like a smart-ish appointment. Like even going through preseason, some of the stuff that we're trying to do, he's incorporating some of the young players. 
I mean, like Fabio Carvalho, who came up towards the end of last season, is getting game time. He seems to be flourishing. I went to the preseason game against Charlton, and it looks like a rigid, you know, a good, a good structured team. You know, still obviously working some things out in preseason, but it looked like there's something there. There's there's some good attacking play. There's there, there's something there. My one doubt about this has been, when is he going to be leaving us? Because if the history has shown, it's just not there like I was never a big fan of him when he was at Hull like I know within like two months of him getting over a Hull even though he was doing like okay like they were doing well at home but they didn't they either didn't win a game or they didn't pick up a point away from home when he was at Hull it was something bad like that but for some reason he was being linked with the Arsenal job he said oh this guy could be the Arsenal manager in the future I was like I'm not seeing this like are you seeing something that I'm not like this guy that's not doing anything much at Hull He's being tipped for the Arsenal job. Okay, fine. Then he goes to Watford. Didn't really do much there, from what I can gather. But within like five months, was already itching to go to Everton. And then eventually he did. And then he went to Everton. And exactly, you know, meant to take Everton to the next level. Didn't really do much. And then was off again. So I'm I'm still a bit hesitant over it. Like obviously I'll back him. I'm not going to call him. You know I'm not going to call him a fraud or say that he should be gone straight away now. But there is just that little bit of is he really in this for us or is he in this for him? In effect, I mean if he gets it, like if he gets us promoted, for instance, and one of the other jobs in the Premier League comes around next summer. Like I fully, I fully expect his name to be like touted around, and I wouldn't be shocked if he was if he was to jump ship again because you know history has shown that is kind of what he does. So it's a bit of a if I if like if I was to give the whole appointment out of ten, I'd rank it about a five, just because there are some reservations about what he can, you know, you know on a personal level, I want to say of what he can do for us. Well, he's a strange one, isn't he, in the sense that he kind of failed, but become upwardly mobile. As you say, Hull took them down. Watford had a massive sulk that he couldn't go to Everton, got to Everton, failed at Everton, and now he's kind of back in the limelight. So you kind of wonder where this all goes. I mean, that five could be a seven or an eight if Fulham live up to their tag as favourites and you get promoted, you think brilliant, but then you might think, is this short-termism? And you're back to square one, you've got to get another manager. And if Fulham needs something, really, they need Cole, a bit of cohesion, don't they, in terms of managers? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, you don't want to have a situation where you're suddenly, you know, a bit like Watford jumping around managers every few months. Um, you just need to kind of settle there, don't you? And get yourselves get yourself settled. Get, you know, hopefully they'll get themselves out of that division and back up quite quickly. Um, and it'll be and it'll be a good appointment. But t- time will be seen. I share kind of Matthew's sort of like dubiousness or doubts there. Matthew, are you worried about the prospect of Valerian Ismail at West Brom? I know he did great work at Barnsley. Or is it a case of him having to hit the reset button and do it all over again? Is this going to be a tougher job for him? I think I think it will be a tougher job. And again, it's it's a case you no know, similar to my you know similar to my like, what is he got like he did okay at Barnsley, but is that was that a one season thing or like can he can can he prove himself to be consistent in the championship? Like I don't know that it was again that was another weird appointment. Like you're doing it off the back of one good season with Barnes, a great season. Let's not take it away. Like they were you know, stayed up on the last day of the season two seasons ago, then got into the playoffs. Brilliant job. But was that all a flash in the pan? You know, similar to West Ham, for instance. You know, was that a one-off or was this something to do consistently? Like if they'd appointed Steve Cooper, 
who was, you know, back-to-back playoff finishes in the championship. Okay, he had a little bit more time to sort of prove himself in the division. That would have made sense. But Ishmael, off the back of one season, again, it's a it's a bit of a tough one, especially seeing they, you know, look as if they're going to be losing their key man in Mateus Pereira, you know, possibly their number one goalkeeper in Sam Johnston, depending on how that all works out. It, again, it's just a little bit of hesitancy on my mind when it comes to Ishmael and West Brom. And Carl, we've gone down the Portuguese route, Nuno Espirito Santo. So we discussed him in detail yesterday. Well, actually, no, we didn't in detail because Harry Kane took all the limelight. But one question I didn't ask last night, I'll ask now, is that he's gone up the food chain, so to speak. I wouldn't say he failed at Wolves, but stagnated. Does that surprise you that he's made that switch upwards? Or does that say more about Spurs' failure to land a real top target? I think it's a kind of mixture of both, isn't it? I think, you know, when when he left Wolves... I... I'd think, you know, a couple of seasons ago, he was being tipped for quite a few jobs, wasn't he? Because the way Wolves were playing and the way they'd come up, I think there could have been quite a lot of teams that might have been eyeing him up thinking, oh, this guy's got something. Last season, they kind of, they fell away, but, you know, they had some issues, didn't they? You know, lost a striker. That was really key for them. Um, it, it's kind of a big step up. Um, he won't get as long if things are not going as well as they should be um, because, you know, we're a club that have got some expectations, probably a little bit higher than what Wolves were. So he probably got more time there and a bit more patience. So I don't think he'll get that here. There'll be some pressure put on him if things are not going right pretty quickly. Um, Maybe it kind of, but then like, as you say, maybe it kind of tells you a little bit about the club as well, doesn't it? You know, we do know that Conte was the man that we were really after, but you kind of maybe get the impression that Conte was put off by the fact that, well, you know, did he know that Kane wasn't going to be staying and was going to go? And he's then looking at it thinking, if you lose Kane, you know, the, and, and you're not going to go out and spend huge amounts in the transfer window and bringing the sort of players that I'm sitting here thinking, if you're going to lose that guy, you need to do this and that. I'm not sure this is a squad that has got the capability of, of putting themselves anywhere near the Champions League. Um, so maybe that says a little bit more about the club. And we've kind of had to cut our teeth and think, right, we need to be a little bit more realistic of a manager we can attract who will kind of, you know, maybe put up with the sort of situations he's going to be put in by the club and the board, as we know, with their spending. Um, but he's happy to take the jump because he feels he can maybe achieve more at a bigger club. Um, we'll see how that works out, won't we? You know, it, it wasn't the most glamorous appointment. It wasn't the appointment I think we were all really after. But it could be that, you know, he may have the sort of the Poch appointment about him where, you know, when Poch was appointed, I don't think any of us were thinking we had the sort of manager we had by the time he left. So maybe that, you know, no pressure uh, and not being sort of like the glamour appointment and the one everyone was clamouring for might work in his favour. OK, that's enough of our manager chat. There'll be plenty of opportunity throughout the season to lambast or praise our men in charge. I want to use the last eight minutes or so to talk transfers, or perhaps, Max, a lack thereof. The transfer window seemed quite sterile at the moment. Is this still the pinch of COVID being felt and, I guess, empty grounds last season and the lack of finance that comes from that? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Um, obviously, you know, it's not only in England, but ac- across Europe, we're, we're seeing, seeing uh, teams struggle financially. Real Madrid and Barcelona are, are very um, are very well publicised, but also in Italy, Inter Milan are really struggling. Obviously, Conte left, um, but, you know, they're, they're not so bad that they're 
uh, willing to let Lukaku go on the cheap. But, you know, the, their finances aren't great. Um, and then in, in France as well, teams are really struggling with, like, the TV rights deal stuff over there. That's worth uh, reading about and looking into if you haven't already because it's, it's really interesting stuff. Um, and then obviously in England, you know, teams are losing so much revenue. I think, what did Levy say he lost because of coronavirus? Like 200 million or something? Um, and, and, you know, other Premier League teams won't have such a high ceiling because obviously of the, of the new stadium um, that, that, that Tottenham have. But, you know, teams have been really hit hard um, and that's across the whole the whole spectrum of, of the game. Premier League teams are probably a bit more uh, insulated against it than, you know, lower league teams. But Premier League teams are really struggling. And I think we're going to see a lot of players moving for fees that, you know, will be significantly less than you would have expected to move them uh, that you would, you would have expected them to move for in, in previous windows. Now, Matthew, of course, it usually needs one transfer to be the catalyst for many others. The big summer domino effect, if you will. Can you see that catalyst and those dominoes falling once Harry Kane departs from Tottenham in the, in the next month or so? You say once. You, you seem convinced Kane's oh, going to leave. Fine. It's the end game. Like, it's done. You sure? Yeah. Okay, fine. Okay, we'll go on. Your, I, I still think Daniel Levy. You know, we know how tough a negotiator Daniel Levy is. I don't. I don't think he's. I don't think he's gonna. He will stare down Man City and say no. Personally, but let's go. But let's go with you. I do think that would be. I would do think that would be one because you know then Spurs will probably have to go and buy someone. Let's say, for instance, for the sake of argument, let's say Danny Ings go to Southampton. Then Southampton will need someone, and so on and so forth. I, yeah, it is looking for one. Even if it's not that one, you know, there there is there is probably going to be one big transfer. In, be it, let's say, for instance, Declan Rice to Chelsea. I think that's another one that could spark off spark off a whole lot. Jack Grealish to Man City again could be the one. Although I don't think Grealish is going to go to Man City either, personally. Um, yeah, I think I think it is going to be a, a summer of just the one big one, the one big transfer. I don't I don't think it's going to be. Like you no know, Kane to Man City can go with you, and Grealish to Man City, and Haaland or, or Lukaku to Chelsea, and Bale back to uh, Tottenham, and someone else. I think once we get the one transfer done, I think that's really going to be it. I can't see there being multiple 70, 80, 90 million pound signings. No, there'll be, as you say, one top tier signing. I think it'll be Kane. Carl, you said last night we're at the end game of this. If it is the end game, it's day two. There's no cane for trading at the moment. So how do you see this deadlock being broken anytime soon? Yeah, I, I agree, Dan. You know, I think it's the end game. I think once you don't turn up for training, you kind of turn the fans against you a little bit. Um, and at that point, for me, there's no there's no recovery. The, the one thing I'm really hoping for in this, though, and I said it last night, I don't want this to drag out. I don't want this to be, you know, a next couple of months of haggling and Daniel Levy playing difficult because I don't think it does anyone any favours. You know, it doesn't. It won't do us and our preparations for the season. It won't do the start of the season any good. I think, you know, if if I'm if if I was able to talk to Daniel Levy, I would say, listen, if this is going to happen, let's get this done within the next week or week and a half. Put if you got to say to City and Kane, listen, you want to go, fair enough. This is what we think you're worth transfer value wise. And unless that's met, you're not going nowhere. And then put the ball in City's court to say, right, you need to come with a realistic offer. Um, I don't want to see it dragged to say like the last day of the transfer window because that will eat into the season. And like I say, then 
We've got to try and find players and get replacements in. I want it done quickly. If he's going to go, and we've all said, haven't we? You know, we could see the writing was on the wall at the end of last season um, that we thought this was going to happen. Um, we then sit in there thinking, well, we've got to wait till he comes back from holiday before we can really start moving forward. Now I think we can see what the plan is. So get it done. You've got to go to City and say, listen, if you want him and he wants to move, fine. But this is the value. It's 160 million minimum. Minimum. Don't come to me with anything less because it will be rejected. And you've got until, say, you've got a week and a half to make this deal happen and come to us with some serious offers. If not, he's going nowhere and we're going to get on with things. And Harry's going to have to be told, listen, Harry, you might not like it, but this is where we stand because I'm not having this disrupting the whole start to the season. But that's wishful thinking. I'm sure it will pan out to the last day, the last hours, but I, I think he will go and whether it's a cash and players and that I think is probably the ideal situation. You know, we, we need some defenders. Um, if City can come up with say 120, 130 mil and then throw say Laporte, Canelo into the mix and, you know, we might be looking for a striker. So even if they was to throw, you know, Jesus into the mix, that might be something where you go, well, OK, we lose Harry. We get a large chunk of money. We also get some players that we need in certain positions. Uh, and hopefully then you can just move forward and try to start replacing that what you're going to lose when Harry's left the club. Right, I'm sure we're going to talk about Harry Kane next week, but we've hit the end of this pre-season session. We're all a bit out of breath. It's a little shorter this week as we try and get back to full podcast fitness. So I just need to do the admin before we shut up shop this week. Max, a sterling performance as always. Look forward to doing it again next week. Yeah, thanks very much for having me again. And yeah, looking forward to next week. Top man. Matthew, thanks for your time this afternoon. I hope you enjoyed that one. Yep, absolute pleasure. Good to get some minutes back under my belt. Lovely stuff. And Cole, thanks for wearing the captain's armband this week. A pleasure to chat as always. Yeah, I'll always show up to training, Dan, on my side, so no worries, <laughs> no worries there, and then I'll be back at training next week. Top man, a model pro he is, gentlemen. So, fantastic. Cheers, guys, and also to the listeners out there. And with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy, this is The Real Football Cast, and until next time, goodbye. Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.